Welcome to the Granite State Gardening Podcast, a production of the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension. We're back to gardening proper for today's episode, focusing on bulbs you can plant this fall. And we're releasing this episode to give you some time to take what you learn and put theory to practice over the next couple months. Before we get into it, I want to tease our next episode, which we're doing thanks to requests from a few different listeners. Thank you. It's going to be on season extension methods and growing into winter. This will be perfect for hobby gardeners and homesteaders who want to grow year-round. This will also cover overwintering crops, where you plant in the fall and harvest in spring. We'll likely touch on frost seeding, winter sowing, and putting the garden to bed as well. Becky Seidman will join us again for this one. Email more suggestions, feedback, and questions for the show to gsg.pod at unh.edu. And let's go. Greetings, Granite State Gardeners. I'm Nate Burnett's Public Engagement Manager for UNH Extension, joined, as always, by horticulturist and UNH Extension field specialist, Emma Erler. Emma, while our minds are certainly still on our fall gardens, enjoying continued blooms, enjoying uh, vegetables from, from our gardens, hopefully enjoying a bountiful fruit harvest as well from from our trees and berries, Um it's important in the fall to also devote a little bit of your mental attention forward to next spring, right? Bulbs are a good example of that. Uh, there are some things in the garden like garlic that need to be attended to in the fall. And I think we also want to talk a little bit about lawn care because early fall is the most important time of the year to invest a little bit of time and effort in your lawn even if you're not a lawn person. But let's start with bulbs. So this time of year, we're planting spring blooming bulbs, which we can call fall planted bulbs. There's, it's a, it's a little, it's a little difficult to, to wrap your mind around the terminology. But Emma, tell us what bulbs you're thinking about this time of year and going into the late fall, maybe even early winter, for planting here in New Hampshire? Well, I I get really excited about spring bulbs and thinking about them just because the winter can be so incredibly long. I think for anybody who gardens, the winter can be really long. And having something to look forward to really shortly after the snow melts, something blooming is a wonderful thing. This happens to be, you know, just about the time of year that people are buying bulbs. I, I think it's not too late. Right now we're in the beginning of September. It's it's not too late still to order some bulbs too um, or pick them up at a local store. But we're getting close to the time where you're probably going to be thinking about putting those in the ground. For me, uh, I usually try to wait until temperatures cool a little bit. Uh, and most importantly, soil temperatures cool. So for my bulbs... I'm looking to get those in the ground typically in October, maybe even into November. Uh, I've actually planted bulbs even in December before, and they were still perfectly fine. So it's something you want to do really as the season starts to change and things start to cool down. Um, and the same is going to be true for your garlic, although we'll talk about that more. Uh, that being, you know, the one edible bulb that we're thinking about in the garden. For, and you, you, 
did a nice distinction earlier, or at least the, the two terms that are used for bulbs, right? So we have our spring blooming bulbs, which are planted in the fall. Uh, most catalogs I see just list them as fall planted bulbs, I think, to eliminate some of the confusion there. But these are these are species that are probably going to bloom anywhere from March through May. And there's quite a diversity here. And, uh, you know, many of them are pretty exciting, uh, unusual. Some are quite common, like daffodils and crocus. Uh, but there's a lot of different species that I can get excited about. Emma, why can't you just plant spring blooming bulbs in the early spring? Are you planting them in, in the fall so they develop a root system? Are you actually expecting to get some green shoot growth in the fall? What is the reason that we plant in the fall? And what's the thinking about exactly when in the fall you do it? Is there, can I plant them now in September? Or is that too early? And if so, why? That's a great question, Nate. So ideally, yes, we do want some root growth in the fall before the ground freezes in the winter. But really the important thing or the most important thing for bulbs is that they need to go through a cold period in order for them to develop flower buds and in order for that flowering to be initiated in the spring. The majority of bulb species that we grow in our gardens need somewhere between 10 to 14 weeks or so of cold weather. So temperatures that are uh, closer to freezing. You don't have to dip below freezing, but you need to be, you know, around 40 degrees or, or under. So you could potentially plant bulbs in spring uh, if you artificially expose them to cool temperatures, but they probably wouldn't do quite as well because they wouldn't have had that root development that they have in the soil. So we, we want that for sure. We want that bulb to become established for the root system and we need, we need to plant them in the fall so that they go through a natural winter and bloom on time in the spring. What you don't really want typically is a whole lot of shoot growth though. If you plant your bulbs too early, let's say late summer, early fall, uh, in September, it's oftentimes still quite warm. Uh, soil temperature is still quite warm. And if you plant your bulbs too early, they're likely to sprout. Probably not bloom. They won't send up that flower bud unless they've been exposed to cold already. But they'll send up their foliage. Uh, that's not typically the end of the world for bulbs. Uh, it will take some energy out of that bulb. And that foliage is going to be damaged. It's not going to survive the winter. Uh, so you probably won't have quite as good looking a plant come spring. But, you know, it's not the worst thing. But if you can just hold your horses and wait until things really start to cool down in October, uh, perfect. This time of year, not only are we thinking about planting spring blooming bulbs, but there are some bulbs that we call tender bulbs that you're actually digging up in the fall rather than planting, right? That's true. Yeah. For a lot of people that grow annuals, uh, some some of the um, annual species that grow from, from tubers or bulbs, you might be thinking about digging those up to try to save them over the winter. Classic example is dahlias. Dahlias can be saved for decades, potentially, if they're dug up and stored properly over the winter. Uh, the same can be said for cannas. They can be dug up pretty easily and, and stored. And if anybody grows things like elephant ears uh, or caladiums, those too can often be dug and saved and brought back out again uh, the following summer. So 
it takes a little work to do that. Usually you want to wait until after the first frost when that foliage has died down. And then you can dig up that clump of, of roots, uh, tubers, of, of uh, bulbs, you know, whatever the type of <laughs> storage system that plant has. Dry it out. And then you're going to want to pack it in some sort of material so that you can keep just slightly moist. So something like shredded newspaper, sawdust, wood shavings, um, vermiculite, maybe even some peat moss. And for me, I often just put them in a, a paper box or a cardboard box, I should say, with some sort of bedding material, sometimes newspaper that's just slightly damp. And I keep them in the coolest spot I possibly can in my house. It doesn't get below freezing. So the, the ideal is something that's a space that's around 50 degrees or maybe even a little bit cooler. And if all goes well, those will make it through the winter um, in a dormant state. And then you can pull them out again in the spring and get them potted up or move them directly into your garden. So maybe in the southern United States, if you're growing dahlias, do you just skip that and grow them as perennial bulbs in the same way that we grow daffodils and tulips as perennial bulbs up here? You potentially could. And even sometimes up here, if you forget to lift a dahlia from the ground or you just don't get to it, sometimes they do survive the winter. They might survive the winter for a couple huh. of years and then one year it doesn't make it. Uh, the one reason why you might not do that, though, with a dahlia at least, is that you might want to dig that plant up to actually divide those tuberous roots up so that you can have more of them. Uh, with a lot of plants, if you don't divide them after a while, you get fewer and fewer blooms. So a lot of people like to dig them up anyways so that they can divide up the plant um, and you know distribute those throughout the garden. I know for a fact, though... Down south, a lot of times cannas are left in the ground year round and they're perfectly fine. So that's a, a very tropical looking plant that does OK if, if you're a little bit warmer than New Hampshire. But ultimately, all bulbs are perennial by nature. Yes. Is, is that right? And it's just a matter of whether they're perennial or rather hardy in a particular zone where you're gardening. But there's there's no such thing as an annual. That's bulb. exactly right. Yeah. So by nature, all these things that we're, we're calling bulbs, which um, botanically speaking, not all of them are true bulbs. Some of them are, are tubers. Mm -hmm. Some of them are rhizomes. Um, but, you know, to make things easy, we'll call them bulbs. These are perennial plants. And the purpose of this this bulb is to be a storage tissue or, or storage structure so that this plant can go dormant whether it's just for the winter um, or, or whether it's, you know, during the hot, dry season and have all this energy stored up to come back again the following season when growing conditions are, you know, perfect again for them to to thrive. How do you go about getting bulbs to bloom indoors, say, over the winter when you want to have some color? Is that possible? Can you give them a chilling period, say, in your refrigerator and then plant them in a container inside your house and, and get those get those blooms? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, a few ways to do it. I, I think some of us might not have a lot of room in our refrigerator for bulbs, uh, but if you do, you could absolutely do that. Um, I've seen them stored before just in cool storage, just in the, the bags that they come from. Um, the, the key just being to keep the humidity up around them, but not let them get 
wet so that they might rot. So the the vegetable crisper, if you have a bunch of room in there, <laughs> could be a spot where you keep bulbs. And you need to keep them in there for that time period, at least, a, you know, 10 to 14 weeks or so before you plant them out. What I've also had luck with for forcing, which I, I think works for a lot of people who don't necessarily want to take up room in the refrigerator for bulbs, is to take your container that you want to use. Because if you're forcing bulbs to bloom outside of the regular season, let's say in the winter, obviously they need to be in a pot of some sort. Uh, planting them in that pot, just with a regular potting mix, and then putting them within the pot in a cool spot. So that could be in a cold frame. Uh, it might be in an unheated garage or a shed or something. Y you don't need that pot to get below freezing. And ideally, it's not going to. You're going to keep it just above freezing. And you're going to leave those planted bulbs in those containers just slightly moist for, again, that same window of time 10 to 14 weeks or so. And then when you're ready, when you want to have these blooming indoors, take them out of that cool spot, bring them to a warm and sunny spot inside your house or inside a greenhouse and let them start to grow. So water them um, to get them going. And uh, pretty soon you're, you'll have your blooms, which is really, really nice. Um, I, I've certainly helped out with this sort of project when I worked at um, a couple of different botanical gardens so that we had a really nice bulb display in February when people were just desperate for some sign of spring. For those bulbs that you do force indoors, once they're done blooming, what do you do with them at that point? Well, you have a couple of options. Um, if you're made of money, you might just put them on the compost pile, <laughs> um, knowing that those bulbs are kind of tired out. They're probably kind of stressed out from growing in a container like that. Your other option is to take them out and plant them in the garden as soon as they're finished blooming. What I've found when I've done that is that uh, if the bulbs bloom again, it takes them a few years to recuperate before they bloom again. Oh, wow. So I've, I've only tried planting out daffodils that have been forced. And it's, it's taken two or three years for them to bloom again. But, you know, it's kind of a nice surprise when those finally bloom. And it's like, oh, yes, those are the bulbs that were forced a couple of years ago. Okay. This time of year, like you had mentioned, is when we're going through our catalogs. Uh, in many cases, if we want some of those specialty varieties or or potentially going to our local garden centers and, and perusing the options they have available, um, what do you look for um, as a bulb shopper? Potentially, what are you looking at in that description in that online catalog or print catalog if you are in person at a garden center? Are you doing any sort of physical inspection of the bulbs? And something I've noticed in catalogs is that the same bulb might be sold at different price points. And I'm curious what kind of insight you have on what's differentiating bulbs sold at those different price points. All great questions, right? So I, I think it's easiest if you're shopping for bulbs in person. If you go to the garden center, if you go to your local hardware store, that where they usually carry bulbs this time of year to actually physically inspect the bulbs to see what you're getting. In general, you want the biggest possible bulbs you can get your hands on. These are going to have not only larger blooms, but they more they might have more blooms. If you get small bulbs, 
Uh, usually you'll probably still get a bloom, but it won't be quite as robust. On a daffodil, for example, you might you might just get a single flower. In catalogs, that's also when you're talking about these different price points, that size of the bulb is often the, the differentiation. The higher price point is probably a larger bulb that's going to do a little bit more in your garden that first season. The cheaper ones are going to be smaller bulbs. Nothing wrong with either one. Uh, it's just a matter of what you're going to get come spring. Those really big, healthy bulbs, big, huge flowers, really nice display. Smaller ones, maybe not quite as big a display the first year, but it'll probably get better and better as time goes on. If you do have the luxury of, of buying bulbs um, in person, or if that's what you plan to do, you'll also just want to look at the condition of the bulbs. You don't want to see any signs of rot in them. And that's often pretty obvious. You know, seeing some, some blue moldy growth on there is something that you don't want. And if any of the bulbs feel squishy at all, if you just squeeze them lightly, that's also a no-go because those have probably rotted and they're not going to sprout. So outside of those two things, big, biggest bulbs possible and uh, nice, firm bulbs with no signs of mold. Perfect. The only um, reason why you might want to order bulbs, I think, instead of just picking them up locally, or I guess there's a, a couple of reasons. Um, one, you're looking for a large quantity of bulbs that you're not going to be able to find locally. Um, or two, you're looking for more unusual varieties. A lot of times if you're buying from a store, you may not have a whole lot of selection. Um, although depending on where you're going, you may still have plenty of really cool varieties to choose from. But if you order from a catalog company, you're probably going to have dozens of different varieties to choose from and maybe even some different species uh, within a genus. So say you're interested in allium. Uh, if you order from a catalog, you might be able to choose between five different species of allium. Um, whereas if you go to the store, you may just have a choice of one or two. So I often do a bit of both. I'm a bit of an impulse shopper in person. Uh, and I guess the same is true when I'm shopping a catalog, too. But I, I often get the most unusual stuff when I'm catalog shopping. Well, and of course, when you are catalog shopping and you have all these different varieties to choose from, those selections are a matter of personal preference and everybody's going to come down on that differently. But now seems as good a time as any to ask you about some of your personal preferences. What are some of your favorite spring blooming bulbs? And do you have any particular varieties recommendations to give just based again on what you enjoy? Of course. Well, there are a lot that I really enjoy. Uh, and there honestly aren't really any bulbs that I, I dislike in the spring. <laughs> I love alliums, um, big globe alliums. They bloom a little bit later in the season. So we're talking about late April or May. Uh, but they're a really, really interesting plant that animals don't tend to touch either. And two varieties that are pretty classic, but I always enjoy are gladiator and globe master. So these are big, huge, perfectly round flowers that are a, a nice deep purple color on a, a straight, strong stem. Uh, they just look really bizarre and interesting. And the uh, seed heads are kind of cool to leave up in the garden because they have this neat star-like pattern. Uh, I've used them for art. I've also just left them in the garden for decoration. So love that. I'm also a big fan of, of some of the species crocus, too. 
it's kind of a classic, but I love Crocus Thomasinianus, which is just a, a really nice blue purple. It uh, naturalizes quickly, so that means it, it spreads pretty quickly on its own, which is really wonderful. And another naturalizer that I really can't get enough of is Glory of the Snow, China Doxa. It's a really neat little flower that's about an inch across that's blue and white, kind of a star-shaped pattern, I guess. Uh, and that one also naturalizes quickly. So if you don't consciously dig them up and divide them, they will spread on their own. So they can be nice for rock gardens. Um, even I've seen them in lawn areas beneath trees uh, to good effect. Well, and on that topic, what recommendations or maybe even inspiration do you have for garden design when it comes to bulbs? How do you think about creating that vision as you are putting together your order uh, this time of year? Um, you're, you're looking at your yard and, well, there, there are some open spaces. And I guess one, one basic thing is density. That's going to be a matter of how much you want to spend because you can pack them pretty close together. But aside from that, what inspiration do you have to share around design? Well, I am not a landscape designer by trade, uh, but certainly one of the things that I like the look of most is when you have large sweeps or patches of the same plant, or in this case, of the same bulb, same variety, same species, all growing together. I think it has a lot of visual impact when you do it that way. When you have a whole sweep of the same yellow daffodil or the, the same purple crocus, as opposed to doing a mix where you have a whole bunch of different colors mixed together or a whole bunch of different bulb species all mixed together. Uh, I think that sometimes can be done to nice effect, but it's hard to do... Um, and have it look really nice. Some of the um, bulb companies do sell bulb mixes that are made just for that, for mixing different species together. Uh, but when I'm planting myself, more often than not, I'm just choosing one particular type of bulb and planting a whole bunch of it in a particular area, um, you know, planted pretty close to each other. And I, I might even do, you know, different layers of bulbs, depending on, you know, the height of them and their, their spread. So it might be nice along the walkway to have something short, like the China Doxa or a grape hyacinth or snowdrops where you can see them really easily. And then a little bit further away, you might have a you know, miniature daffodil or you, you might do some, some hyacinths, Spanish bluebells, something like that. And then in the hind ground behind you where you have a bunch of height, that might be the spot where you put your taller daffodils, um, where you put your alliums uh, and some of, the, some of the bigger stuff there. So that's, that's kind of my thinking. Again, this is all subjective, but uh, yeah, that's, and I often, w one thought too, and this just comes from experience. I try to plant my bulbs in spots where I have perennials, not where I'm planning on putting my annuals in. And the reason for that is it's kind of a pain to try to plant your annuals around your bulb foliage before it goes dormant. I've ended up having to kind of tie the foliage together to plant annuals in amongst bulbs that haven't fully gone past and doesn't look good for a while. So I, I leave those spots for annuals free and I put my bulbs in kind of interspersed among the existing perennials. 
Emma, are there any native bulbs or bulbs that you'd say provide more environmental benefits? Yeah, totally. So a lot of the bulbs that we grow are going to provide good forage for uh, early bees that are out, but they're not native. So whatever, you know, that means to you, uh, perhaps they're not quite as good a forage as some of the native species. Um, all, All the bulbs I've recommended don't really tend to be an invasive threat. Um, So I'm not concerned about that. Um, But if you are trying to plant something that's going to kind of perfectly align with native pollinators coming out with plants that they are more um, accustomed to or adapted with, you have some options. Uh, Only a few, I would say, are, are truly native to New Hampshire. There's a few that are a stretch that I'll mention um, that are still quite nice. But uh, certainly one really nice one is Rue Anemone, uh, Thelictrum thelictroides. And that is a native New Hampshire wildflower that's in the buttercup family. If you tend to find yourself walking in rich woodlands, you've probably seen this really beautiful little white flower in the spring uh, above this really delicate divided foliage. So that's one I would definitely look into. Um, Another nice one is Jack in the Pulpit. Perhaps not quite as showy as some of the other bulbs that we've been talking about, but still a really nice um, spring bloomer. That one's not going to be attractive to bees as much, uh, but you'll probably get some some flies and beetles checking it out. And it's just an interesting plant. And uh, another one that actually does really well in my garden is Bloodroot, um, Sanguinaria canadensis. And this is a fairly common native plant that grows in deciduous New Hampshire forests on floodplains typically. It has kind of a whitish pink daisy-like flower uh, with a yellow center. Um, Flowers close up at night, which is kind of cute, and then they open again uh, come the morning. And I always see bees visiting the ones I have, so that's a nice one. And then if we're stretching our definition of native, I would definitely recommend planting some mayapple, um, Potophyllum peltatum, which is a rhizomatous perennial that typically grows about a foot tall and has these neat umbrella-shaped leaves and actually produces edible fruit that some people use for jams and jellies. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Virginia bluebells. They don't grow wild in New Hampshire, um, but where they do in the Midwest, they are absolutely striking. Uh, And they form this really beautiful spoon-shaped foliage and clusters of drooping bell-shaped flowers that often kind of start out at a a pinkish hue and age to to blue. Um, So gorgeous, worth planting. Maybe doesn't fit quite into that definition of of bulb, um, but you find them in um, bulb catalogs, certainly. A lot of those natives that you were just talking about I assume those are pretty tolerant of some degree of shade, whereas a lot of the more classic bulbs that we think about require full sun generally, right? Well, the big thing uh, when you're planting bulbs is looking at what type of shade they're going to get. Okay. So all of those natives that I just mentioned are usually associated with uh, deciduous woodlands. So in areas with, with trees that lose their leaves in the wintertime. And when those bulbs are coming up and blooming is before the trees are oh, fully leafed out. Oh, I see. So they get plenty of sunlight when they need it in the early spring, and then they die down once the trees fully leafed out. 
And the same actually can be said for a lot of the non-native bulbs from from Europe, typically, or or from um, the Middle East that we plant. If you put them under a deciduous tree, let's say a, a maple or an oak, they're fine in the spring as long as they bloom early. Uh, but you wouldn't want to plant them underneath, let's say, a hemlock or a pine where they're going to be getting shade uh, right through the spring. Okay, that that's really important, I think, even from that design perspective, sort of honing in on some of those deciduous shade trees in your landscape that might not be good for planting some things under, uh, but bulbs which bloom so early in the season sound like a really great option for those spots. Absolutely. And that's the the important thing too. Bulbs bloom across different times of the season. So choosing bulbs to go under trees that bloom in, in March and April would be ideal for underneath trees. And then for those that aren't going to bloom until late April or maybe even May, those probably should be in a full sun location in your garden. Emma, we did an episode a while back on gardening and landscaping in tough spots and situations. And so I want to ask about a couple of those tough spots and whether some bulbs might be appropriate. I was thinking about uh, particularly exposed sites, areas that maybe get a lot of wind, for example, um, and then low-lying sites uh, that may have some excess moisture at times. And then you are, are there any bulbs that can do well under conifers or are, are none of them going to be suitable? Well, what I would say to that, a lot of bulbs will be perfectly fine if they're in more exposed areas, as you say. If you are going to put them in a spot where there's going to be a, a lot of wind exposure or cold exposure, I would probably be opting for things that are more than hardy enough for your area. Most daffodils are going to do perfectly fine. And majority are hardy to zone three. So you should be able to grow them really throughout New Hampshire. But you might struggle with something like a, uh, a hyacinth in that spot, a plant that is technically hardy to zone four, uh, but tends to do a bit better in zone five. Uh, but winter wind shouldn't be too much of an issue for the majority of these because they're not going to start sprouting until after the snow has gone and the soils has started to warm up in the spring. Planting in low-lying areas, that's a little bit trickier. Pretty much any species of plant that we're calling a bulb uh, prefers a well-drained soil. The vast majority do. So that means a soil that drains pretty freely after a rainstorm. It holds moisture, but it's not soggy. You really don't want to put too many species in soggy soils because they're, they're just going to rot. Uh, really not adapted to that. A lot of the species that we like best, some of the, the tulips and daffodils are adapted to grow on rocky slopes. Um, and that swampy area of your lawn um, does not apply. There are, however, you know, a few species you could get away with in that sort of scenario. One I already mentioned, uh, which was the jack in the pulpit. If you find those growing in the wild, they tend to be in lower kind of swampier areas. I don't know how a, a whole display of jack-in-the-pulpit would appear in the garden, um, but they should be able to tolerate that kind of growing condition. And you might be able to get away with trout lilies and that sort of spot, too. Um, they wouldn't like constantly standing water, uh, but it's another species that you find in floodplains. So they would probably do okay uh, in a lower-lying area. 
Do bulbs really have uh, soil requirements that would necessitate getting a soil test? Um, are, are they generally going to tolerate New Hampshire soils as they are, you know, on the on the pretty acidic side, for example? Some species will, although I would say that the majority are going to probably prefer the soil pH to be more like that of what you want for your average garden. So somewhere between six and seven. If you are just planting natives, you might be able to get away with a more acidic soil. But I should note that some of these species like the the bloodroot, for example, or another one I didn't mention, um, Dutchman's breeches, which is related to bleeding heart. Those plants tend to show up in soils uh, that, that are a bit sweeter. So more on the alkaline side, which is why you don't find them everywhere in New Hampshire. You mm-hmm. find them in little pockets here and there where the soil is is just a bit different. So in, in general, yeah, probably worth having your soil tested just to make sure your pH is at least appropriate for the species you're growing. And that's only going to be a benefit to the rest of your lawn and garden, too. Really quick, I don't think we need to go through a step-by-step on how to plant bulbs, but are there any common mistakes you see gardeners make in planting bulbs? Well, I mean, kind of the classic is planting bulbs upside down, right? (laughs) If you can, uh, try to identify where the roots are on that bulb uh, and plant pointy end up, roots down. A tip I was given a long time ago that I've, I've really found helpful is that if you're not sure which end is the top, which is the bottom, plant the bulb on its side because that way it's, it's going to have a much easier time growing up. Um, sometimes if they're planted totally upside down and if they're planted too deeply, they might not do anything at all. So that's something to think about. Um, planting too deeply too is potentially an issue. I have planted a lot of bulbs on the more shallow side and they're totally fine. Um, what actually happens over time is that a lot of these species will end up kind of pulling themselves down further into the soil. You might have found this if you ever planted a tulip and then maybe years later it hasn't bloomed in a while and you want to dig it up and it seems like you can't reach the bulb. It's so deep in the soil. So I I would err on the side of being a bit too shallow as opposed to too deep. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, along with planting comes the age-old conversation and debate about what to put in that planting hole. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think, well, the conventional wisdom is to throw some phosphorus in the hole with that bulb or at least, you know, some sort of fertilizer. Like a bone meal. Bone meal. Yeah, that's often what's recommended to put in the soil with the bulb. Uh, I typically don't really bother to fertilize bulbs the first year they go in. Uh, And the reason for that is that the the bulb already has all of the nutrients it needs to grow the next year uh, into flower. What's more important is actually fertilizing after that bulb has finished flowering so that it gets the nutrients it needs to recharge for the following season. And um, the bone meal, I mean, there's a couple of thoughts here. Some people think it it might actually attract nuisance wildlife. So if you're planting something like tulips, that would be a no-go, where animals already really enjoy those. Right, as if the animals need any help finding them. Right, exactly. Um, And the other thought there is that most garden soils in New Hampshire are already really high in phosphorus. So there's really no need to add the bone meal in there and give the bulbs extra phosphorus. They have plenty. 
And I was looking back at a program we did last year, and we got a question about whether you should be putting a mothball in the bulbs, which uh, you gave a resounding no to. We got questions about uh, crushed marble, uh, various types of repellents. You know, people want to pack these planting holes with all kinds of things. And it sounds like you're more of a fan of going au natural. I am. Yeah. So there, I guess there would be a couple of things I would say to that. If you have some really highly valuable bulb that you don't want an animal to eat, it might be worthwhile to build a little cage for it that you put the bulb inside of when you plant. Like a hardware cloth type enclosure? Hardware cloth, exactly. Planting the bulb inside of that. So a, a chipmunk or a, a vole or maybe even a deer um, doesn't doesn't get it. You could also try some repellents. I have had some luck uh, with if I'm fertilizing um, other plants in the area anyways, had some luck with some of the, the smelly organic fertilizers, keeping some wildlife away, but not, not complete luck with that. Um, you might have better results with some of these really potent, smelly uh, products that people use to keep deer away and keep rabbits away. Um, but, you know, it's going to be kind of wretched out in your yard while that's going on. And there's not a whole lot you can do once you get snow cover anyways. So that exclusion method with the hardware cloth is your best bet. And if wildlife is just really getting your goat, then I would opt for planting wildlife resistant species and try to get away from the ones that just keep getting eaten. With that hardware cloth, how do you ensure that the bulb can actually get its foliage through? Well, I would be aiming to use a hardware cloth that's has a fairly large gauge that leaves could poke through. So something like a, a half inch gauge, I think would be appropriate. So half inch mesh. I wouldn't go smaller than that because it might be hard for the foliage to get out. And I wouldn't go larger than that, probably. You could maybe get away with an inch. But if you if it starts getting too big, a lot of these wildlife species that you're trying to keep out will be able to squeeze through that mesh. Mm-hmm. Half inch is what I've used before, and that's that's worked out all right. Gotcha. It is a big pain, though. Um, and as much as I love things like tulips, I'm just, I don't know. I'm not sure I love them enough to deal with battling wildlife over them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hear you. And definitely the cost of developing a cage enclosure for each and every bulb in, in large mass plantings uh, can can definitely get up there. Well, and you could make a larger cage that holds several bulbs, okay. too. So you could have your whole planting in this larger enclosure. Yeah, that's a good um, point. But, you know, it's a headache down the line if you ever need to get in there and divide. Uh, since you have this <laughs> wire mesh contraption buried in the soil. Um, but it's absolutely what some people have to do if they if they must have tulips or, or something similar. Well, let's talk about division for a second. Uh, what time of year would you do that? Are there certain bulbs that you just know, hey, I'm going to have to divide these on a semi-regular basis. And how do you do it? The species I usually think about needing to divide is daffodils. 
or I shouldn't say species, the, the type of bulb, mm-hmm. uh, because they, they tend to form a lot of what are called daughter bulbs. So little baby bulbs that form off of the original bulb. And when these get really crowded, you'll often see f- just fewer and fewer flowers developing over the years because uh, there's, there's just not enough room for all of these bulbs packed closely together. So when that happens... Um, when you think you need to divide, I usually try to let the bulbs live out their their normal life as much as I can. So I will note where they're flowering and I will usually put a stake in the ground where they where they're located or generally located and let the foliage go naturally dormant. And once that foliage has died down and the bulbs have gone dormant, I'll go in with a, a digging fork and I will try to lift those bulbs up, divide them up. Um, you know, maybe break apart clusters if there's a whole bunch stuck together and just plant them again. So that's in the fall. Well, it could be in the fall. Um, I've done it in the summer before, too. Um, and that that should be OK. You know, it's you haven't messed up their their uh, rhythm, if you will, if you're doing it out in the field like that. OK, got it. So. Yeah. I mean, fall would be ideal, but it's up to you whether you want to look at a stake in the garden all year, <laughs> marking where your bulbs are. Um, and then uh, for fertilization, we're fertilizing after bloom, right? We are. Yeah. So we'll fertilize after the bulbs have finished blooming, you know, right as they're starting to peter out, but they've still got their healthy foliage. Because that's when that bulb's going to be putting on a really... Um, Getting most of its most of its energy, on and storing that away for next season's bloom. Mm-hmm. And given that bulbs are planted in the fall, is that when you would also transplant bulbs? Um, yeah, that that would be ideal. Uh, if you know exactly where they're located, and if you mm-hmm. if you've staked them and you know where they are, yeah, if you want to dig them up and move them in the fall, that would be perfect. Great. I want to move on, I think, to talking about garlic for a couple minutes. Uh, so just like bulbs, we're in this this time of year uh, here in September where people are uh, rushing out to get their garlic if they haven't already. I know in my case, maybe you're in the same situation. We've already placed our order for garlic, but we haven't received it yet because a lot of, a lot of these reputable seed companies will send you these fall bulbs uh, at an appropriate time for planting so you don't have to hold on to them for a while and and you're getting them in the ground in peak condition would you say that timing considerations for garlic and spring blooming ornamental bulbs are roughly the same i would yeah so if you if you <laughs> once you are working on your spring blooming bulbs you should be thinking it's time to get the garlic in the ground too garlic's kind of the same and that you don't want it to sprout in the fall it's probably not going to hurt it too much you'll still have a good crop the next season but it's not it's not ideal so you'd be waiting you know until october or november to plant you know as long as the ground isn't frozen yet you should still be able to plant if you want that little bit of establishment on root growth before you hit the winter months, you probably want, you know, six to eight weeks or so until the ground is frozen. And that usually doesn't happen until this, at least late November um, or December, depending on where you are in the state. So you have got a little bit of time for those to become established. Um, you know, that all that being said, though, I have 
I haven't planted garlic in December, but I have planted spring blooming bulbs in December and they've they've still been all right. But yeah, I, I would be aiming for October, November, probably November in the southern part of the state and October in the northern part of the state. Yeah. And with with garlic, it is worth considering uh, fertilizing in the fall, right? It is. Yeah, it's worth fertilizing. The difference with um, garlic, too, and you're putting that in, is that you've got a very, very small little clove that you're putting in the ground, and you need that to grow into a, a full-size bulb to harvest, you know, early in the summer, the, the following season. So you, you probably are going to want to um, apply some um, nitrogen, at least, before planting. And again, the ideal here is that you'll have your soil tested so that you're applying just the nutrients you need. Chances are good that your garlic's not going to need any phosphorus. Uh, but if, if you don't know at all, a balanced fertilizer would, would probably be best. So you, you could go organic, something like a, you know, 343, or you could go with just the old standby 101010 or 10010. Gotcha. What about variety selection with garlic? That's that's pretty important. Uh, in in northern New England, people typically grow those hardneck varieties, right? They do. The hardneck varieties tend to be a little bit more cold hardy, which is a, a good thing for northern New England. Uh, and I really like hardneck garlic. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times, what you get at the store is softneck garlic, so it might be. You know, if you're if you're only familiar with supermarket garlic, that's that's probably all you've ever had. Uh, but there's there's a bunch of really nice hardneck varieties you can grow too. Uh, the difference, and I don't do this, um, is my understanding, anyways. If you want to braid your garlic, though, you need to have softneck garlic. Say a little bit more about that. What do you mean by braiding it? Um, for storage, some people like to braid the actual uh, foliage of the garlic together so that you have this really, and people do this with onions too, this really attractive braid that you can hang down that has garlic, clo garlic cloves along it with the foliage all attached. It's kind of, um, I don't know, I picture it as being this kind of pastoral European thing mm. uh, that, that people might do. So you braid it together and hang it from the rafters to let it cure. Um, and then you have that garlic ready to go. That's, so if, that's you, if you're into that, soft neck garlic's your thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if not, that's that's okay too. Uh, with variety selection, I mean, there's it's it's remarkable. There are a ton of different garlic varieties out there. Um, some of the ones that did well in trials in New Hampshire, at least in northern New England, were ones like Music, German Extra Hardy, and Russian Red. Um, but there are others out there too, that you can totally experiment with. Um, and I, garlic connoisseurs will often grow, you know, dozens of varieties just that they have a slightly different garlic for different culinary purposes. Right. This year was a little bit of a challenging summer for garlic harvest because July was so wet, uh, and people typically try and harvest garlic when the soil is dry, to which leads nicely into that drying and curing process. What 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 did you hear uh, from folks this year? You know, if, if anything, and what were you recommending to to harvest uh, when the soil is kind of as dry as possible? Or you know, I, yeah. I, I guess there's only so much you can do, right? 
Yeah, to be honest with you, I I didn't hear too much on that front. Um, but the ideal would be to try to harvest when the when the soil's dry and the sun is out, just because that garlic is going to be less likely to rot when you've got it out of the soil. Because um, all these things like garlic, onions, even even um, carrots, so these root vegetables when you pull them out, if you take them out of the ground and it's really wet and soggy, uh, and you injure that that um, bulb or root at all. It's a, an entry point for fungi and bacteria and a wet environment is perfect for that to proliferate. So the drier it can be, the better. Just kind of do the best you can. Um, if you did have to harvest while things were wet, you would just want to try to get those those garlic bulbs into an area that's as dry as possible as, as quickly as possible so something like a a greenhouse would probably be perfect if you had that and if not then a, a really warm sunny window where things are going to dry quickly mm-hmm. and probably during this drying process doing some rotation too so not just letting them sit in one spot another question folks have in the fall in addition to planting timing and fertilization is mulching, specifically what type of material is appropriate. Um, Unlike, say, in a bulb setting, garlic is an edible crop, and my thinking is to mulch with uh, the type of mulch that you would use in a vegetable garden more generally, things like straw, which is nice because the, the garlic is able to push through that material pretty easily in the spring. So you don't want to go with something too heavy like bark mulch or, or something that the, that the garlic might struggle to get through. What are your thoughts on that? I think I'd be thinking along the same lines, Nate, where I'd be using straw if I could get my hands on it because that's a wonderful mulch for the vegetable garden. I wouldn't be opposed to using grass clippings either, though, if I had a bunch of those that didn't hadn't been treated with herbicides. Uh, or even some shredded leaves would potentially work well in the garden if you have a bunch of deciduous trees and the means to, to use those leaves as mulch. That would be good. The real purpose of that mulch over the garlic is just to buffer the the soil temperature a little bit keep that soil from from heaving over the winter months and and moving that garlic around in the soil or pushing it up and out of the soil and um you know also just keeping the soil a little bit mild having the soil temperature be a little bit milder if you put mulch on too soon though it might cause the garlic to sprout so you do want to wait to do that until the the ground has started to freeze and then you can put that mulch on. You don't want to do it immediately after planting, unless you're planting really late. <laughs> uh, and that can just stay on during or throughout the spring, um, right up through harvest. And in the spring, hopefully that mulch is helping suppress weeds. With in-ground gardening, the soil uh, is, is going to be pretty insulated. Uh, we, we know that soil temperature doesn't change as much and it doesn't change as rapidly as air temperature of course Uh, but an interesting question i got earlier this year was about growing garlic in raised beds and whether there was a concern about garlic being placed or planted rather too close to the edge and potentially uh, having issues with freezing just just because again you know, unlike in an in-ground situation, soil that's close to the edge of a raised bed with just uh, a thin piece of wood in between it 
is going to have more temperature variation. One of the reasons people like growing annual crops in raised beds is because they warm up quicker, but it also means on the on the inverse that there would be a concern about it getting too cold over the winter. Uh, I spoke with Becky Seidman about that really briefly, and what I what I recall her saying, um, and I, she's someone that I don't think has grown garlic in raised beds, but her thinking was make sure that there is some space between the edge and the garlic. We recommend six by six spacing for garlic as a general proposition. So having at least six inches of space from the edge or um, probably a, a safer approach would be just planting a single row down the middle of a thin raised bed or potentially two rows for a thicker raised bed. Uh, but yeah, you, you probably do want some some space to prevent those issues you were just talking about um, associated uh, with frost. Totally. No, I was kind of thinking the same thing. And I imagine it depends on, on where you're located too. If you're in a milder part of the state in the southern New Hampshire or seacoast, you're probably going to be able to get away with more than you'll be able to up in Coas County with your with your raised beds. But a little bit of experimentation never hurts, and definitely choosing a, a hardy variety in this case would be helpful, I would imagine. Yeah, definitely. And um, kind of going back to this time of year, you know, for, for harvesting, curing, saving that garlic, what, what do you need to do, Emma, to take some of the garlic that you have harvested this year and uh, get it ready to plant again? Well, the big thing, you know, hopefully the garlic that you saved, if you're growing seed garlic, is still in good condition. Over the course of the season, you've stored it in a cool, dry place and it, it hasn't started sprouting or anything yet. To get it ready, uh, there's not a whole lot you need to do, uh, but you will need to break apart the individual cloves. When you plant garlic, you what you're planting is just an individual clove, which if all goes well, is going to form a new head of garlic the following season. So you'll you'll probably want to carefully, you know, break those heads apart so that you have your individual cloves for planting. And I would use just the biggest cloves to put in the ground. Um, really small ones, you could probably just set aside and use those in cooking because they're not going to grow into such a good crop. There are special tools just for breaking apart garlic heads. Uh, but if you're just planting a, a few plants here and there, you, you can probably just do this by hand. No problem at all. Emma, people... Well, likewise, thinking about planting garlic in the fall, ask about planting some of uh, some similar vegetables in the fall, namely onions and shallots. What's your take on whether onions and shallots can be planted in the fall um, or whether you should be waiting until spring for those? I think they can be planted in certain scenarios. If you're a person who has a, a high tunnel where there's going to be some protection uh, from winter cold, that might work. Uh, and actually, there's, Becky Seidman did some research on overwintering onions in New Hampshire um, in just that, in high tunnels. Um, I probably wouldn't try it uh, with just a, an in-ground bed out in the garden. I suspect that a lot of those bulbs, either they're or seed, it's not going to survive. Or if it does, that it's going to bolt really early. So onions uh, need a cold period in order to bloom. 
And so if you've you've planted little sets, let's say, out in your garden in the fall, and they go through the winter and they survive, um, when it, spring comes, they will initiate a flower bud. And when onion flo- onions flower, the bulb quality degrades really quickly. They get all mushy um, as all that energy has gone into flower production and they're, they're no longer quality. Yeah, bolting like that's really common with, with overwintered onions. So kind of tricky. Uh, I don't think it's worth it. I think you're better off just growing them during the normal growing season, planting them in the spring, and then having hopefully enough set aside that you get through the winter until you can grow another crop again. Well, let's wrap up with a few minutes on fall lawn care. Now, with lawns, the reason I think it's important to talk about a little bit is because basically everyone has one, whether you're a lawn person and actually put work and effort into it, or it's just there. Either way, it's something that most, if not all of us have to some extent or another. And my thinking is if you're ever going to really think about your lawn, the fall is probably the time to do it. Um, one, one issue that we often run into with our lawns, uh, and this is really simple, but what to do with the leaves that fall on it. That's that's something literally everyone has to deal with. We, we want to think about our mowing, because if you have a lawn, you have to mow it, at least to some extent. And over the summer, we, di- we tend to advise Emma to keep your mower deck somewhat high over the summer with lack of rain but then fall comes and we are getting more rain and we're thinking about preparing that grass for winter so i'm curious what your take is on whether you want to lower that mower deck in the fall then and we can we can talk a little bit about fertilization and and seeding too but let let, let's start with some of those basics well to start with the mower I would be inclined to still keep the mowing height fairly high. Uh, And the reason I say that is because the length of grass roots tends to correspond with the the length of the shoot above ground. And fall tends to be the best time to really put on a lot of root growth for grasses. So I want to keep as much photosynthetic tissue as I possibly can above ground while grasses are really starting to thrive again in the fall so that they're growing um, quite a bit of roots. When it starts to get really cold and you're starting to think about putting the lawnmower away, you might drop the deck um, to do one final mow. I probably wouldn't drop it below, you know, two, two and a half inches. I, I think that's excessive. But um, you could do, you know, your final mow a little bit lower, uh, just, you know, tidy things up a little bit more and leave plenty of room for, for spring growth. Uh, and at that point, too, once once it starts to get really cold and we're having frost and everything, then the grass is really going to slow down its growth particularly once the soil temperature drops below 40 degrees. With leaves on the lawn, that's always, you know, an issue that we all have to deal with. If you are intent on having a nice lawn, you do need to get the leaves off of the lawn. Mm -hmm. Leaving full, complete leaves is going to smother the grass uh, and or cause some issues with mold. So... Getting the leaves up is one option. You know, if you want to use those leaves as compost in your gardens or or as mulch, then completely removing them from the lawn is great. If you're looking for a bit more of a lazy man's approach, which works pretty well for the lawn, if you have a a, a mulching mower, um, just going over 
the, those leaves with the lawnmower a bunch of times and just kind of raking them into the, the soil a little bit or into the lawn often works pretty well. Um, and if there aren't too many weeds in your lawn, you might be able to go over those leaves with the mower and then rake them up and put them into your perennial beds or use a leaf blower to blow them into your perennial beds. Um, I've done both before. And you might get a few more weeds in the garden if you're doing that. Um, but you sure saved yourself a lot of time with the leaf removal and added some mulch, too. So I, I think that's a good option as well. Uh, but you just can't leave them in their natural state on the lawn if you're still hoping to have a lawn. Gotcha. Uh, that that all makes sense. And I, I think for me, looking for the, the least amount of work possible for the best results is kind of the, the idea. So doing doing some sort of mulching of leaves in place makes a lot of sense in that regard. And then there might be some extra that you can use as that high quality mulch for the gardens. Makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And when I've had a lot of leaves before, I'll rake them into kind of windrows and then go over them with the lawnmower. Oh, nice. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense, right? Because if you do want to get little piles because you don't want to set your mower deck that low uh, and, and the way the mulching mowers work, you, know, you, you still need those blades to actually be able to, to get at what you want to mulch. So you got to raise them up a little bit. And yeah, like you said, probably make a a few different passes to really get the job done. Something that people sometimes like to do in the fall is aeration. What's your take on that as a fall activity? I think fall is a good time to aerate. It it might be a little bit hard to do in the spring sometimes when the soil is just thawing out and things are kind of squishy. Um, but the fall is fall is definitely good, and that's when grass is putting on a lot of growth. Combining with that aeration, it can be nice to top dress with compost and then aerate to work some more organic matter into the soil. So I, I think that's ideal. And if your lawn needs even further renovation, uh, it's often good to mix aeration with overseeding. Yeah, so let, let's talk a little bit about that. So early fall is what I understand to be really the best time to do that because we have really good weather conditions. We're getting a good amount of moisture. It's still warm and the soil's still warm, but it's not blazing hot. And perhaps most importantly, as a differentiator to spring, there's less weed pressure. So your your grass is going to have a little bit less competition in getting established. Um, so that's really nice. What is your take on overseeding? Is that something that people should consider at doing on a semi-regular basis? Is that really just something to focus on, say, in the wake of last year's extreme drought? People are probably dealing with quite a bit of dead spots in their lawn where you know they really are in need of renovation um, and, and they're needing to actually kind of rake that dead grass away and and get some new seed in there. Do you need to fertilize when you overseed or can it be as simple as just kind of walking around and tossing some grass seed out in the lawn and calling it a day? Well, the ideal here, of course, is to uh, fertilize and lime as you're overseeding. And I think for a lot of us, we're looking at putting down some fall fertilizer anyways, knowing that that's really you know, a good time for, for grass to put on a bunch of growth and particularly root growth. Spring and fall tend to be the, the best times, most bang for your buck if you're going to fertilize. 
with the overseeding itself, that's going to be kind of an, on an as needed basis. If you have a really thick, lush lawn, if you're sprinkling grass seed over top of that, it, most of it's probably not going to germinate and you're just wasting money. But if you do have some areas that were very weedy, that were thin, uh, like in my lawn, there's some areas that have gotten very weedy, some spots where there's a lot of uh, moss coming in between the grass. I'm going to do my best probably just by hand to get those weeds out, um, to rake the moss up. I'm going to get my lime down. I'm going to get my fertilizer down. And then I'm going to overseed you know, over the existing grass that's there and in some patches that are just totally bare. And uh, if all goes well and I, I keep up with my irrigation through the fall, if we don't get rain, I should get some good growth in by. So I'm planning to do this within the next week or two, um, should get some good growth uh, the latter half of September, October, maybe even a little bit into November um, up until it starts to get really cold and that ground starts to freeze. I know that it's it's really important anytime you're doing any kind of direct seeding to get what we call a good seed to soil contact. Um, if you are overseeding into a part of the lawn where they're, yeah, it's kind of like bare, but there's still a hard mat of, you know, roots and, and you know, vegetation on top, thinking you're not going to get the best seed to soil contact. So what are your thoughts on what to do both before you put down the seed and after you put down the seed to to make sure that you're you are getting adequate seed to soil contact so you'll get good germination. You'll definitely want to rake and maybe even thatch that area. So if you have a, a thatch rake to get in there and rake up all the loose uh, dead grass material that's on the soil, that's going to be a good thing to do. Um, if you don't have a thatch rake, even just a, a good solid raking with a, a metal leaf rake, we'll do a pretty good job of clearing as much organic matter out as possible and exposing the bare soil. And then when you've done that and you've, you've, uh, and you should do that first before you apply your lime or fertilizer, then you can overseed and if it's an area where there's already existing grass, you probably don't need to be getting a, a lawn roller out, but just using the backside of your rake uh, to gently press that seed into the soil will probably be enough. All right. Last, last thing. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about fertilizer and grass seed selection. In the fall, of course, some folks are using these multi-step programs where there is a specific fertilizer for that fall period. But let's say you're not doing that and, and you are just looking to select a fertilizer to use that that's appropriate this time of year. What are you looking for? And likewise, with that potentially complementary overseeding, what's your general advice for folks without knowing their very specific site and soil conditions? You know, What general advice do you have for uh, for grass selection in northern New England? Oh, for grass selection. Um, well, in New England, we really can only grow the cool season grasses. So that excludes things like zoysia grass. We're still too cold to be able to grow that, at least in northern New England. So that leaves you really with a, a selection of a, a few species and within those species, a bunch of different varieties. The I guess the, the grass that real lawn aficionados lust over is Kentucky bluegrass because it forms a nice, deep green, um, dense, consistent mat across the soil. It does um, 
have higher nitrogen requirements, though, and it does need a fair amount of, of water irrigation. So that's for the real high intensity lawn. You might go with a Kentucky bluegrass lawn. Uh, if you have, um, you know, perhaps you're not looking for that, that perfect lawn standard. You probably want a nice mix of grasses. Uh, and for that, you're, you're pretty much always going to have some Kentucky bluegrass in the mix, but you're probably going to have more uh, perennial rye mixed in as well as uh, fescue. The fine fescues and even tall fescues tend to be a bit more drought tolerant and have lower fertility needs. So they're appropriate for a lot of people that have sandier soil in, in direct sun, no irrigation system, and they want to be lighter on the fertilizer. So fescue mixes have gotten pretty popular. Uh, something else that's, I guess, gaining popularity too is is adding white clover to your grass seed mix because that does fix its own nitrogen um, and, and can cut down on the amount of nutrients you need to add to your lawn. If, you know, all of this seems kind of overwhelming, the good thing is that a lot of grass seed packaging is labeled to try to help you out, um, particularly at retail. So if you have a shady area, you want to buy a, a grass seed mix for shade. Um, if you are looking for something that's more drought tolerant, chances are you're going to be able to find a package that that says that on there or just know that some of the, the fescue blends tend to be good in that scenario. For fertilizer, again, we always come back to it. Soil testing is going to be ideal. Uh, when I'm fertilizing a lawn, I don't really change up the fertilizer I'm using for the season. I use the same one all year round. It's probably safe to assume that you don't need to add phosphorus to your lawn um, just based on all the soil test results I see. Uh, but if you really don't know, you you might just get a balanced fertilizer that has roughly equal parts uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. So if you find those three numbers on the fertilizer bag, you want those three to be, you know, relatively equal. Um, and the ideal here, too, is to use a, a slow-release formulation. I would recommend something that has at least 50% slow-release nitrogen. And it will say that on the label on the back of the package. That just means that, that the nutrients, that nitrogen, is going to be released slowly by the product so that you're going to have fertilizer available to the plant over a longer period of time. And you're less likely to be polluting when you do that. Um, but definitely what you'll want to make sure is that the product you're using has a good amount of potassium because our soils pretty much always need potassium and potassium is critically important for a healthy lawn. Emma, we'll, we'll get to your uh, featured plant for this episode in, uh, in just a minute. But I, I want to thank our, our listeners for giving us uh, some really good feedback and suggestions recently on the podcast. And, and Emma and I have been listening to everything you have to say and we've been putting together some ideas for a few last episodes here in the fall before we take a, a break between season one and season two of the granite state gardening podcast emma and i have heard from folks that you'd like us to to do an episode that that talks about planting and transplanting perennials trees and shrubs so we're we're going to line that up for you um, we've gotten some interest, certainly in fall vegetable gardening, cover crops, those sorts of topics. We recognize it's a little bit late to give you a primer on that topic before you actually go and do it. But if you all would still find that useful you know, to cover, even if it's not ahead of fall vegetable gardening, uh, we'd be happy to do that for you. 
certainly happy to get this topic um, out for you um, on on the fall planted bulbs and lawns. Um, we've also been, uh, you know, we've gotten some feedback that folks would like us to do a podcast on kind of a what's wrong with my tree and small property, you know, management. And we'd be happy to to do that for you as well. Native plants, uh, for sure. Emerging, emerging invasive threats is something, you know, we, we've heard from folks. Uh, so this is all to say, we'd like to hear from you and continue to hear from you on what topics would really resonate, whether there's anything that you'd like to see us do this fall, and and just know and understand that we have a lot of really exciting ideas for early spring, late winter as well. We're, we're going to plan to wrap up season one in the beginning of November and then reconvene in February to bring you uh, more guests, including from outside of Cooperative Extension and more topics. So all to say... Thank you for listening. Thank you for for sharing your your thoughts, uh, questions, and suggestions with us. And and Emma, do you do you want to launch into this episode's featured plant? One of my favorite bulbs is China Doxa, which is also known as Glory of the Snow, China Doxa luciliae. Chinadoxa is a short-statured spring bulb that's a member of the asparagus family. It's native to mountainsides in western Turkey, and it's one of the first bulbs to bloom in the spring, often emerging through the last of the snow, hence its common name, Glory of the Snow. Chinadoxa is hardy to zone 3, and it will grow happily in well-drained soils in full sun to part shade. Chinadoxa typically only grows about 3 to 6 inches tall, and it has narrow strap-like leaves and flower stalks that feature two to three star-like lilac blue flowers with white centers that have six petals. It provides late winter to early spring color in the garden, and I find that it works really well in rock gardens, woodland areas, lawns, or areas beneath deciduous trees. Over time, China doxa will naturalize, which means it will spread by seed and bulb offsets to cover a broader area. I love China Doxa because it's really beautiful, and it's also resistant to wildlife. If you have issues with voles or chipmunks or deer in your garden, you can rest assured that they'll usually leave this plant alone. This episode's closing gardening tip is on food preservation. Top of mind for many gardeners as summer transitions to fall, But it's important to do safely, because improperly home-canned vegetables are actually the most common cause of botulism in the United States. This can occur from not following instructions, not using tested recipes, not using a pressure canner in good working order and with an accurate gauge, and even from just ignoring signs of food spoilage. Proper canning involves food heated or processed in a mason jar at a specific temperature for a certain amount of time to destroy microorganisms and resulting in a vacuum sealed container that can be safely stored at room temperature. Besides canning, freezing, and drying are other great food preservation options. Freezing especially is a great place to start and can be used for vegetables, fruits, and meats. Keys for freezing include doing it as quickly as possible and using packaging specifically recommended for freezing. And with drying, you don't need a food dehydrator, but it certainly can come in handy. 
my go-to source for up-to-date research-based information is the National Center for Home Food Preservation. We'll throw the link to their website in the show notes. And that's your closing gardening tip. And before we go, I want to again plug our upcoming workshop on using manure in the garden. That's on September 25th in Durham at Wagon Hill Community Garden. We still have a few spots left, and I hope you'll save yours. And trust me, it'll be a lot more fun and interesting than it might sound. We've got the link to that in the show notes, along with some great resources on growing bulbs and garlic. And like I mentioned at the top, our next episode will focus on overwintering garden vegetables, growing and harvesting into winter, putting the garden to bed, and more. Until then, keep on planting bulbs, Granite State Gardeners. Talk with you soon. Granite State Gardening is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the universities, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.